0: Paid a lot of attention to the Old Testament. We, we didn't mean to ruffle feathers, but this is sort of what that means. Uh, back when I was a boy in the last century, when I was about seven or eight years old, I remember going with my father, who was a very zealous new convert, to show uh, something called the Jewel Miller Fultures, <laughs> um to, to families who were new to the area or who were new to our church. Sort of I still remember the sound of that ding when it was time to turn the film strip. And part of what I remember at seven years old was the dispensations. There was the patriarchal age, and that was Abraham and all that stuff. Ding, that was over. There was the mosaic age. Ding, that was over. And now we're in the Christian age. Right. So what I what I get when I took away from that was those were old episodes. But the one that really mattered was the last one because that's the one where we made the pitch to people to join the church, become baptized, believe, repent, be baptized. Does that make sense? What I left thinking was the Old Testament was interesting, but it was all you really needed in church was your New Testament. And I I also remember there were editions of the New Testament with Psalms that you would take to church to keep from having to carry the whole fat Bible with you. I never could figure out why the Psalms were in there. Nobody ever explained it to me, but the message I left with was the New Testament's really the Bible, the other stuff is kind of like the rest of it. That's not an accurate perception, that was my heretical view as a young child, but that's what that's what we meant sort of by the fact that we tend to downplay the Old Testament because we're so intent on the New Testament, especially Acts. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so in Churches of Christ, we've actually done a really great job being people of the book, being people who uh, read cover to cover assiduously and with dedication, And but I think what Matt is saying is correct, that there was also maybe a perception that God's living word is in the New Testament more so than the old. If that wasn't your experience, that's wonderful, but it might have been, and so that's what we were talking about, so... Okay, so switching gears, we're going to talk. I'm going to talk about um, this problem, Arianism, which also overlaps with a heresy called adoptionism that was on our schedule, I believe. So I'll, I'll say something briefly about adoptionism. Uh, these overlap on the point that they both profess that Jesus could not have been fully divine in the same way that the Father is divine because he seems to be a creature. He seems to have been created by the Father rather than co-eternal. What adoptionists claimed was that Jesus was uh, such a good person that he was adopted by God as his truest son, and then the rest of us kind of come after that. Um, There were some versions of it that said his birth, his conception was miraculous, so there was something miraculous happening, but he still was adopted into God's family, so to speak, before the rest of us. So that was, one, that was an earlier heresy that was kind of swirling around. It emerged in the second century. So by the time we get to the first half of the fourth century is when Arianism emerges. It's a more serious heresy. So I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. <clears throat> so in the roots of the controversy around Arianism connects with what we've said in here about uh, Platonic philosophy. So if you remember what we've said about Platonism, they, Platonic philosophy maintains that there is this ideal one from which everything else emanates. And the world around us is the world of appearances, but the ideal one of everything exists in this world above us in some sense. So the example I used was that there's an ideal tree somewhere in uh, the heavenly realm, so to speak, in Christian terms. Uh, but so the trees we see in the world here are these kind of iterations of the ideal tree. Okay. So, according to that same line of thinking, um, the source of all things is one. And so, for Christians, they thought of that as the Creator, the Father. And then, um, that source of all things has to have certain qualities it has to be immovable, it has to be unchanging, and it has to be unfeeling, in a sense. It can't, uh, this one source of all reality doesn't have the potential to feel, to change, to feel things other than what it always is. So that's, that's Platonism. That was in the water at the time. And so if you become a Christian, you might think, and you're reading the Old Testament, you might think, it makes sense that that would be the father, the one that we are calling the father. And you might think, well then, what about the son, the one that we're worshiping and we're calling divine in some sense? And they were working out well, who he was in relation to what we find in John 1 about the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So they're listening to that and they're thinking, it must be that the Word is the way that the immovable one interacts with all of the stuff, interacts with the world that is changing and feeling and moving and evolving. So this was the kind of uh, and some of the earliest, best Christian thinkers were developing this kind of philosophy. Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Origen. Uh, they all believe that there is this supreme being, the Father, and the Logos, or word, is like God's reason, that interacts with creatures. It has the capacity to do that without compromising the kind of integrity of God. Okay? But the problem is, you eventually, if you're, you're saying that you're identifying this, the the Logos with the Son for long enough, you end up with this disagreement along the lines of what is the status of the Logos compared to the Father? Uh, Is the the Logos equally divine? Uh, Are they to be worshipped in the same way? So uh, there was a big fight about this that broke out in Alexandria between a bishop named Alexander and a prestigious church elder named Arius and the main issue they were fighting about was whether or not the Word um, had always been. Was He co-eternal with God or not? And they're, bo- they're arguing about this reading Scripture, reading the New Testament and Old Testament, and trying to work out their points. What's ultimately at stake is the divinity of the Word. And also at stake, and I think this is the most interesting point, is the question of how is it that Christ saves us? Because on the one hand... Arius, who we now call a heretic, was claiming that the word could not have always been because it's the thing, remember, it's the, the mechanism by which God interacts with the creation that changes. Clearly, it must emanate from God, therefore it is uh, changeable. It's a creature. It's created. And it's, he says this: the word became flesh in Christ, and, that's beca- and that saves us because Christ was very human and Christ was obedient. So if Christ wasn't human and a creature, then his obedience wouldn't mean much. He was just divine. It's like, of course it would be easy for God to obey God. That was kind of his logic. Uh, on the other hand, on the other side of this argument, Alexander was saying um, the only reason we are saved at all is because it was God who became flesh our condition needed healing, and God became flesh and dwelt among us and healed us. We had to have a divine agent. So this is what's the back and forth. The argument grew and grew uh, until it became an issue that Constantine, the emperor, considered worthy of his attention. So he calls for uh, a council, the Council of Nicaea, In uh, the year 325, it was the first ecumenical council, universal, meaning um, Christians from all parts of the empire came to the council. And there was an important young deacon there named Athanasius. He was Alexander's secretary at the time. And his writing on this point actually became a lot more famous than Alexander's. And his conviction, and he convinced everyone there, at least the majority, he convinced the majority that at the heart of Christian faith and human history is God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, by virtue of God visiting us in the flesh, we are protected from Satan. We are free to be what God intends us to be. That is, we are free to grow into the fuller and fuller communion with God that we were intended for. And this is a really important point for him, too. For Athanasius, the work of salvation can be no less than the work of creation itself because salvation is re-creation. So the one who is the author of our salvation cannot be subordinate somehow to the creator because these two functions, these two activities are synonymous. And he argues very convincingly for this. And so they decide to produce a creed. So this is a later creed than the Apostles that details some of this more because if you look at the Apostles' Creed, it's not quite clear. They haven't worked all this out quite yet. So, of course, they're, they have the Apostles' Creed in mind, but they're thinking we need to make this a little more spelled out for everyone so that we know what it is that we're claiming about the Son. So some key aspects of the Nicene Creed. Uh, it says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, That is, from the substance of the Father. That was their fancy way back then of saying he shares in God's divinity. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, emphasizing that point. Begotten, but not made. So there's that eternal emerging from the Father, but not being a creature. Through whom all things were made. So there's that emphasis on he is no less than the creator. So again, I I can stop, but I think one of the most important threads here is the theme of salvation. And this is not new to uh, people who are reading the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets regularly remind Israel that they cannot save themselves, that only God can save them. And it's actually one reason that Jesus gets himself into trouble in Mark 2, 7, uh, because he forgives sins. If you remember, the teachers of the law say... By what authority does he do this, right? So in calling Jesus the captain of salvation in Hebrews 2, the earliest Christians are affirming that Jesus can do something that only God can do. So that's why this becomes an important conversation, and we have to work this out. What does it mean for him to share in God's divinity without compromising monotheism? So that gets into the whole question about the Trinity, and why is it even an important doctrine? But that was another um, piece of these conversations is that the people on the sides of the heresy were saying they were really concerned with preserving monotheism. That was always their concern. So the people who really wanted to preserve uh, Jesus' divinity realized they needed to work out a Trinitarian doctrine. They wanted to say God is one, but also God is Father and Son, and then the Spirit's in there too circulating. That gets affirmed a, a little bit later they realize they need a doctrine like the Trinity to sort that out. Okay, I can pause for comments and questions. Comments?
0: Because so, this is pretty <coughs> dense. And it was dense for the 4th century church. And I, and I know from medieval history that Arianism and Christianity in Western Europe contended for a long time. It took yeah. them a while to kind of walk through it. So let's go back. I like the way you phrased it. Um, <laughs> that Arianism is kind of a status problem in the church. And it's, it's all about the question of the relative status of Jesus the Christ and God the Father. Am I right about yep. that? Mm-hmm. How, can, how can Jesus be a creature? How, how can he be a made thing if he is God who is an unmade thing? Wouldn't right. it be, wouldn't be easier, wouldn't it be more logical for us to to go the Arian way, which is mm-hmm. God's God, and he decided to make Jesus as a special human being to do all that stuff? Mm-hmm. I, mean, that, I mean, I'm arguing, I guess, the theoretical side for this. It. It's just easier to wrap our heads around that way because we also believe in the 4th century that the ultimate truth, the, the God... He's unchangeable, immovable, eternal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he's unemotional. He's absolutely true, and he's absolutely not creative, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's creator. So, and that brings me back to the why is the logical way of of coming to understand who Jesus is not a good way to understand it. Why does that, I mean this is I'm asking you to review a little bit. So why does why isn't that a good enough explanation? Because it seems to make so much more sense, and it is easier for us to get our heads around, because yeah. we know God's creator. Why is that a dangerous thing to think? Can you go back through that part?
2: And I want to add one more thing to Matt's, because <laughs> I want to play side too. Um, and there's language that kind of Kind uh, of also makes this make sense of this, like um, like
0: um, Jesus took the form of a man and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross, or um, obedient until the
2: point of death on
1: the cross. So. I'm. I'd like to let Josh speak into it first. Do you have any? Uh, no. like, I thought
2: I was the hook So if you think about what Matt's saying about the logic of it, the, he's right if you're working within the logic of a platonic framework. God has to fit these kind of paradigms. He's unchangeable. He's unmovable. Whatever. If that's your forced paradigm, then the logical move is Arianism. But part of what Christianity is saying is you're trying to do logic in the wrong paradigm. So within a paradigm in which, um, well, it's, it's actually changing the paradigm. It, it's that paradigm's not big enough. That doesn't work anymore. And part of the reason it doesn't work is because we've been worshiping Jesus. Uh, Part of it doesn't work because he was forgiving sins and acting like God and he's been demonstrated to actually be trustworthy because he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. We've got to change the paradigm. So you're right, but with the wrong paradigm.
0: So so what you're saying is, when you you say paradigm, Jesus comes and does what he does and we understand it, we're having to say, oh wait, we thought we knew who God was. Jesus has showed us that God is, is a bigger kind of a God than we thought. Even we were working with this system.
2: Jesus helped us realize. And when we look back in the Old Testament, we realize, oh, that, that fits this bigger system, too. Um, so, and I think this is, this is one of the issues that um, Alistair McGrath points to. Is he, he wants us to realize that the orthodoxy was not about holding on to the status quo. It wasn't trying to, like, it wasn't this power move to to meet the status quo. Instead, it was doing something that was even more revolutionary than the heresies. The heresies were more about upholding the status quo. Orthodoxy, which we think of as conservative, was actually revolutionary uh, in its time. And you mentioned Constantine. Constantine was more on the Arian side. He wasn't, he tried to play kind of neutral, but if he leaned anywhere, the power was leaning towards Arianism, not towards Orthodoxy. Um, so that's, that's helpful to keep in mind. And the church realized we've got to hold on to this. As, as Lauren uh, pointed out, is if we, give, if we give up this piece of Jesus being divine, a whole lot of dominoes fall that are really problematic. What does this mean about salvation? What does this mean about the person of Jesus? What does this mean about where we put our hope? If Jesus is divine, that tells us what our problem is. Our problem is we can't fix ourselves. We need God to fix us. If Jesus was only human or a creature, we might think, well, what we need is better education, better governmental systems, better something else. But if the nature of Jesus is the nature of our salvation, then it points to the nature of our problem. That's huge. That puts Christianity on a different trajectory. We don't look to ourselves to fix ourselves. We might partner with God, but God is the source of our salvation. If we're thinking uh, where we went, started this class, most practical and important thing about a person is his view of the universe. When part of your universal picture is God is triune, he's in loving community, and that humans can't fix themselves, that changes then how we live practically every day. Um, And as, I'm not going too long, but we're feeling the cultural kind of pressure right now to make Jesus um, something less than fully God. Mm-hmm. The cultural pressure is to make Jesus kind of one among many iterations of God or paths to God or something like that. And if we want to follow that cultural pressure because it kind of would make it a little easier to get by, what happens is other dominoes start to fall. And that becomes highly problematic. And what makes Christianity so beautiful and so compelling gets so watered down that it's it's um, no longer helpful. So that orthodox position is becoming revolutionary in the not but, yeah. there's a church
1: on Franklin Road. on
2: their sign
1: today, I know oh man said, I want
2: to keep my mouth every
0: time I <laughs> <laughs> we are all fully human and fully divine is there any sense uh,
2: or how would you, you know, oh, that's, help that's, get to that position? Okay, I would not help it's, that's, yeah. that's a unitarian <laughs> church it's, yeah. it's heretical Jesus is fully human fully divine yes. we are human the spirit of God lives in us, but it doesn't make us fully divine uh, so, are we divinity and dust? <laughs> uh, we are made in the image of God, and we are dust. But divinity and dust is closer to Gnosticism if we yeah. don't parse that really, really carefully. Um, there's a way to parse that orthodoxly, orthodoxically. <laughs> so, would, be, <laughs> would, when du-
0: would divinity and dust be heretic?
2: Depends on how you parse it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it needs some really careful language. And this is a shortcut. The language we're
0: not comfortable with in in my tradition, first Christ, is is the language of mystery. And and this is sort of what we're talking about. The the church, as we see them working through Arianism, is is they're trying to explain what is mysterious and and what is difficult to explain, which is why the the logical solution, Mm -hmm. logic always ignores mystery. Mm -hmm. And that's that's, that's part of our struggle, is, is that we would so much like to just explain it in concrete terms. And the church is trying to say it's it's
2: it's a bigger thing than that. It's more
1: complicated. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that both sides of this debate were using they were appealing to scripture to make their points. So, to that earlier question Jason raised about what do you do with the passages that say that, that sound like Jesus what the, the more Arian model? Uh, he became obedient to death, then therefore he was elevated to the highest place. Seems like there's this new status that he's a, he's afforded. Um, there are there are plenty of instances where it sounds like there is something more like an Aryan process happening, but what the wisdom of again this or, this process that produces orthodoxy in response to this pressure is saying we have to find some way to hold these things in tension, so that therein the mystery becomes important. So it's not even until later after. Uh, the Nicene Creed, we have the Chalcedonian definition that works out what we need to hold intention. What does it mean that Jesus was fully divine and fully human? How do those two things actually cohere with one another? And so they're reading scripture saying the fully human part of Jesus had to learn obedience. That was, that was part of the deal. That learning obedience was not negated by the fact that he was also fully divine. And at some point that does become a mystery. You, when you start trying to parse all of that out too clearly, you end up with just an endless war amongst yourselves. So the wisdom of the Chalcedonian definition is that they decided, here's what we know we don't want to say, and that's about all they did. We know we don't want to say anything that goes outside the bounds of Jesus being fully divine, fully human. I I could take maybe one more question along the yeah. <laughs>
0: sense is uh, the word in the first verse of John uh, the words of the Old Testament (coughs) meaning did Jesus write the Old Testament
1: um there was a really clear sense in which um people associated the notion of the logos with the notion of the wisdom of God in the Hebrew Scriptures, the notion of the Logos is, is taken from Greek Hellenistic philosophy. So the word that is referred to in John, you already see this early attempt in the Gospels at you appealing, kind of bringing those things together. Because you can think of John as thinking about his audience. This is something that would make sense to them. But he's also drawing upon the wisdom tradition in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, um, the wisdom of God and the spirit of God work together, according to the way the Hebrews understood the inspiration of the prophets. So, so yes, there's a—I wouldn't say they're synonymous, but they work. There's this kind of sense in which the same power is driving them. Does that make sense? Is that sufficiently mysterious? <laughs> okay, I'll wind up. <clears throat> Um,
2: so helpful to have Lauren here. I have like a fuzzy idea of so much of this stuff, and Lauren's got this kind of sharpened, specific, um, yeah, just, I can, I can speak a lot more with confidence up here, because I always know I can, I can double check with Lauren to make sure I'm, I'm uh, on the right track. Uh, so, we are, Somewhat moving now from the focus on Jesus' divinity and why it's really problematic to deny that, and we're going to begin the discussion of of uh, Jesus' full humanity and why that is um, is crucial for our faith as well. So, why might his humanity matter? Well, um, here's how Mike uh, Michael Bird uh, says it. Let's see if you can follow this: The Son, who knew no sin, became sin to make sinners righteous. He took on mortality in order to make humans immortal. Uh, so part of what he's getting at here is as Jesus becomes human, uh, he makes it possible uh, for our human experience to be redeemed. So we remember our biblical plotline: humanity is created good, but then there's some sort of brokenness and corruption, some imperfection um, that goes with, with being human. Well, the solution seems to be Uh, Not that God just kind of zaps things from on high, but that God takes on our flesh. And by taking on our flesh and living a fully obedient life to the point of death and then being resurrected, He redeems our flesh. So um, we get the language uh, like He's the first fruits of new creation. So part of the reason that it's important that Jesus is fully human is that He can fully redeem our humanity. Uh, Another reason reason why we might think of him being fully human as being particularly important. So first one is kind of that transformation piece. The second would be the intercession piece. Um, So Hebrews, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like humans in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Is Randall here? Uh, This is like Randall's Bread and butter here. All right. Uh, So I'll get teary-eyed so I can channel Randall
1: uh,
2: as I I talk about this. Um, So as Hebrews is developing this idea of high priest, the high priest represents someone who can kind of mediate between God and human, the one who kind of stands between. Uh, And what Jesus is, is he's the great, the perfect high priest. What makes him the perfect high priest? Because the one who stands between humans... And God is both fully human and fully divine. We could not ask for a better intercessor uh, than one who can fully empathize with us. Lauren was talking about this mystery. Somehow, um, God has the ability to empty himself to some degree as he becomes human so that he can really feel temptation. He can really feel pain. He can really feel sorrow. As God takes on flesh, he... He in a sense, kind of gives up, empties himself of some of those divine um, attributes, or the experience of those divine, I don't know the, the language I need to, to use here, um, but uh, it's like he can put that on pause, or on hold, or something, uh, so that he can know what it's like to be human, so that he can live as a human lived. Uh, so, our high priest now, Jesus, is one who didn't just come as like Superman, And, uh, you know, or Teflon and everything just kind of fell off of him. But he knew uh, what temptation felt like. He knew what pain and suffering and loneliness and isolation felt like. And so he can perfectly intercede for us. Fully God, fully human. So in prayer, we speak to someone who is both empathetic and omnipotent. How great is that? Someone who is both empathetic and omnipotent. Um, So we'll get more maybe into docetism uh, next week. What happens when you let go of that? Um, So he is born of the Virgin Mary. We did a little bit of Conceived by the Power of the Holy Spirit. He's born of the Virgin Mary. uh, And this is, I guess maybe I should have started here. Uh, Part of being born of the Virgin Mary uh, reminds us that he's divine. He's not just human. He didn't just have two human parents. Um, So he's not like Samson. You know, he's a normal human who gets this extra power and then he's kind of of special, or he's not like uh, John the Baptist, two human parents, gets a little special experience of the Spirit. That's not Jesus. He's not um, a normal human who uh, Jesus kind of decides to give uh, a higher status to, Uh, but he is somehow, even at his birth, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, his father is God somehow, and his mother is the human Mary. He is both God and a first century Jew. That's strange, right? Uh, but that's part of the, that logic um, is necessary for the bigger story. He suffers under Pontius Pilate, really suffered, really experienced crucifixion. I think I heard uh, Ken was wondering, why is Pilate mentioned? Uh, of all, of course he leaves and dies. Uh My shout outs are really bad today. Um, so, uh, why mention Pontius Pilate? In the first, or as they were working out the creed, I have no idea why Pilate, gets mentioned originally but I know today it really matters because it's a way of saying this is a historical event Uh, this really happened this is not metaphor this is not parable this is not fable this is not legend this really happened crucifixion is not um, is not something that we can we can uh, bend on this is a historic incident and mentioning Pilate kind of grounds that historic incident um, incidentally, uh, almost everyone kind of historically now recognizes that the crucifixion happened. They don't all think that it means no. that Jesus is divine.
1: That was, it played the same function back then. It did? Then. Yes. Really? It did. All right. Because the of all the Gnosticism and the questions about him actually appearing in the flesh.
2: So that was even back then? Okay, and perfect. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, think, I think it's double that. It. I mean, I'm referring to Pilate, historicizes Christ. Mm-hmm. really lived and
0: really then because we know what it was. I think the key word, though, for your discussion today is he suffered. Hmm. When he was whipped, it really hurt. When yeah. he was spit upon it, it really shamed him. Yeah. When he was dying, it it was painful. And,
2: and I think that's the other piece about the, the pilot phrase, is he suffered. Yeah. This is not... Um, he did not get to escape that. And next week, we'll even, I think, Gnosticism and Gnosticism, we'll get to develop this a little bit more. As Lauren um, had us thinking about the paradigm of who God is, unchangeable, unmovable, unfeeling, whatever it might be, you can see this is problematic. Can, can that divine person actually experience this as a full human? Maybe he just appeared to, he didn't really. The full humanity is getting at that. I, yes? Uh, along the lines of what
0: Matt was saying, uh, Jesus is not only a high priest and the king, but he's the sacrifice.
2: Yes. Yeah, he's omnipotent. And then he's, other oh, I empathetic, <laughs> yeah, empathetic and omnipotent, but he's a servant. Mm-hmm. The um, I have like a list of like 12, 12 ways we can think about the cross. The, there's it's just so rich when you read the New Testament. It's not as the New Testament says when you think of the cross, you only got to think about it as a kind of sacrifice, or you've only got to think about it as now he's intercessor, but. It, it's such a, a, a world-shaping, paradigm-shifting, monumental event that there's just no way to capture that with one metaphor, one idea. And sacrifice is a huge uh, one of those. It, it leads to forgiveness. And it, rep- it tells us sacrifice doesn't always, only fix something of the problem, but it also tells us something about the nature of God. God became the sacrifice that we needed? What? I mean, this doesn't fit the logic. And yet, this is the logic of Christianity, that kind of beautiful, compelling logic uh, that we wouldn't make up, but then you hear it and you're like, that's got to be true, or at least that's something of my experience of this. Was there another hand? Yeah.
0: Yeah, one of the things that seems to be the incredibly radical thing in all of this, and if you think about it even with platonic thought, this is the revelation that God is... From his very basic nature, relational. Mm -hmm. And all of these things point to that, which is the radical thing that says God enters a relationship, that means that he suffers. Mm -hmm. When things don't go the way they should, it means he's willing to make sacrifice, and it also means that he's willing to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's such an incredibly (coughs) shocking. Yeah. kind of an idea of what humanity thought of as God.
2: Yeah. So the, you, you see them holding on to God's omnipotence, omniscience, uh, in some ways his unchangeability, and yet he is also able to suffer and die and be in relationship, which would seem to not be able to be held together, and yet <coughs> this is part of Christianity's logic. and We can have both.
0: Sometimes a cliché can be useful, but we have that cliché being all-in in a relationship. And this is, at the risk of using that cliché, a shorthand way of explaining this is, this doctrine argues that God is all-in to being human, mm-hmm. just as Jesus is all-in God, being all in being all-in, being absolutely committed in this relationship. Beyond what's humanly possible, God himself becomes fully human.
2: Yeah. Larry Hurtado, um, he, as he tells about, he's a Christian historian. see what the time is. Um, and he, he points out these unique things about the Christian worldview that just didn't fit in the Greco-Roman world. So if you think about the cross... Uh, for instance, uh, the cross represented in the Roman world foolishness, defeat, curse isolation, rejection, all that stuff in the Christian paradigm the cross represents the opposite, they don't see uh, defeat, they see victory it's not foolishness but wisdom, not curse but forgiveness, not rejection but reconciliation, not shame but honor Um, and so part of what Christianity does is it kind of flips things and what Larry Hurtado says is is we have a kind of cultural amnesia, a religious cultural amnesia where Christianity was saying a different way of thinking about God, a different way of thinking about the big picture. And what's happened now, in kind of 21st century culture, is you've got a lot of people who like that view of God. And so they're kind of, apart from Christianity, they like to think about a God who is compassionate and empathetic and all this stuff. But what happens is they don't have the... Christianity can say that because Christianity has a foundation of God taking on flesh and suffering and dying. But the the kind of pop culture version of God that wants to claim all the same attributes of God, is missing that foundation. It's 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 just um, yeah. It's, it's kind of Christian plagiarism. Uh, and I think it's helpful for us to say we make these confessions because, or we can make these claims because we have these larger confessions that that. Well, the word mystery has been used this morning. His, being a high priest is a bit
0: mysterious too because he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a very mysterious
2: oh, yeah. character. Mm-hmm.
0: He predates the Levitical priesthood. Yeah. And even Abraham, the father, they looked as the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham
2: paid tithes. Yeah. Them. Yeah, Hebrews picks up on that Melchizedek thing. And I think that's a good good way of putting it. Melchizedek is mysterious. And so he's the perfect kind of uh, parallel to, to help us. Try to grasp what we can't fully grasp. Yeah, that's very good. You were channeling, Randall. Yeah. Yes? So, um, so my question is, is this with, with Jesus <laughs> being fully human, mm-hmm. within a lot of cultural Christian references and music, we talk about humans being dense, broken, mm-hmm. kind of original sin light. So, how do you take that doctrine that there's something fundamentally wrong with humanity? and at the same time say Jesus was fully human, with no sin? Um, Lauren might be able to explain this better. Uh, So I'll give it a stab, and then Lauren can can correct me. Uh, I think that's part of the mystery here of of, um, entering into our humanity in a different way. Um, Although he experiences humanity's um, not any sort of guilt or... um, Kind of sinful character or disposition, um, I think, is, is one way. So he's not coming in with guilt, or um, yeah, that that leaning to sin that maybe some of us have. Would you say that's?
1: I think the the summary we're to wrap up is that what we what Jesus becoming fully human discloses is that sin is not fundamental to the human condition. Hmm. Is that original the doctrine of original sin doesn't account for that reality, so that. It may be, sin may be
2: inevitable for us, but it is not necessary. If that makes sense. So he kind of gets that new Adam condition or the yeah. second Adam uh, retry. All right, I think Matt is going to um, to lead us in the um, Apostles' Creed. We have a few extras. For those who
1: don't
2: have
0: it memorized. Actually, I- I was bored walking from my car. I work at Lipscomb, so I get a lot of exercise walking from parking to my class. It's not that hard to memorize, so I would encourage you, if you have time on the treadmill or you're walking to work, it's kind of built to be memorizable anyway. Has everybody got a copy? So let's begin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. the resurrection of the body and the life and everlasting. Amen. Right. Thank, thank you.